0: So they say that there's two off-limit topics that you are not to bring up at any dinner party or holiday party gathering. Any of you can guess what those two topics are? Politics and religion, right? Good for you. Um, You know, nothing like those two subjects to cause a vitriol response in the crowd, right? You have opposing views and and, and one camp looks at the other camp, why did you say that? And, and people begin to dig in because they, they hold some very passionate views about either one of those topics. Well, this morning, we're not at a dinner party, but we are going to cover both of those topics. I'm hoping that we're not lobbing grenades at each other by the end of the service, though. But I do love this about the word of God. This is one of the things that I appreciate about God communicating himself to us in a written fashion that is to be uh, preserved throughout human history, that his word will prevail and it endures forever because God doesn't hold back that in his divine wisdom, he teaches us on subjects like this. Subjects that make us feel uncomfortable. And I would say in light of our very present worldly country contexts, very uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable because we often form a view that may not be aligned with the response that God is calling for. God doesn't treat the subject of government in our response to it as a private matter. Much like money, right? That's another thing you don't talk about, especially in church. You don't talk about government. You don't talk about money, how to use it, all those kinds of things. Those are private matters. We, we form private uh, views on those things. But God puts it all out in the open and he's going to challenge us with some things that I hope encourage you I hope shake you, I hope cause you to uh, like pause and think of the bigger picture. Uh, because left to ourselves, we get caught up in this narrowed, focused, what's right in front of us kind of life, right? We're just looking at the next thing and, and, and God shines a light and he says, okay, let, let, let's take a step back, let's consider some things, let, let's be aware of what I might be doing in the midst of all this. So we are going to talk about some hard things this morning, especially because the issue of government is such a polarizing subject. Sometimes in scripture, you may not have a specific uh, opinion about something and you hear the word of God and you think, oh, okay, well, that's what God says, so I'll do it. But I'm going to assume that for the majority of you, you have a specific opinion concerning government, its role, its function, um, how it works, all those things. And so it may be more difficult for you this morning to put some of those things aside because you have an informed opinion about it. But no matter how you feel, what I ask of you this morning is that you listen with understanding to what the Word of God teaches. And so I think it's appropriate we pray right now. Because we need the Holy Spirit to guide our hearts. So would you join me in prayer? Our Father, again, we come before you knowing that all that we are and, and it, the, the very reason we're here is because of you. We are grateful, Father, for your love and grace. And we are thankful, Father, that your word is, is super clear Thank you for teaching us and showing us the way to live for you in a fallen humanity. And especially this morning as we work through these challenging things of, of government and our response to it, what it means, why government is in existence in the first place, uh, God, all of it, we, we just ask that we would have ears to hear and hearts to listen. Uh, Father, we pray that your spirit would teach us. And that if there's anything in our lives in the next few moments that you're going to challenge us with, Father, I pray that we we would be willing to repent and we would be willing to, uh, in godliness, walk in obedience. And so God, work in our midst. Help us to shine brightly for you. And may you be honored and glorified. And God, again, uh, just for these moments, I just ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. And we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Before we jump into text, I want to recognize um, and I'd like us to consider a few things as we look at this passage. The first thing is the political situation in Rome as Paul was writing these words. And so Paul wrote this letter probably... 25 years or so after the Lord Jesus was uh, crucified and resurrected. Um, The political situation in Rome was an explosive scene. Um, During the time that Paul wrote this, the Emperor Claudius had expelled a large group of Jews because of their, um, their views and also... Uh, their, the fear that he had for their following a certain Crestus. Crestus is Christ. And so he was in the process of dealing with this small group of Jews that had followed this Christ, and he was trying to deal with it. And so the Jews had experienced, these Jews who had followed Christ were, were experiencing some form of persecution. And though the Jews had returned, the political situation was volatile in Rome and in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was the empire, it was it. Its fingers had reached out into every nook and cranny of the known world at that time. And so there was this sense of, if you were a Christian in the first century, of uncertainty of the world that you were living in and the role that the government had over you. And from the time that Paul wrote this letter, within 10 years, there would be another Caesar, another emperor. His name would be Nero. And we've talked about Nero before. Nero took great delight in persecuting the Christians. Um, It it was a way of sport for him. Um, It was, he turned persecution of the Christians into entertainment. Um, and, And so you have the Roman Colosseum, right? and the lions, and the fights, and the gladiators, and all those kinds of things. And Christians were were thrown into those kinds of arenas uh, all, with all sorts of other persecuted people, but Christians were were, were pointed out. Uh, he would also persecute Christians uh, by um, crucifying them, and then lighting their bodies on fire to light the streets in Rome. And so you have this, this sense of a people that are trusting in God, living in a political climate that was not just uncertain, but it was hostile towards their beliefs. The other thing that we need to understand is that Paul wrote this letter to instruct us how to behave properly towards the state. For believers, Paul wrote this letter for us and how to behave properly towards the state. What Paul writes in Romans 13 is not some kind of ivory tower, Pollyanna kind of thinking. You know, the ideal situation. This is how you act if everything is perfect. This is how you act if they agree with you, if they like you, all those kinds of things. He doesn't really talk about that. He says, listen, this is our context. This is the world we're living in. It's fallen. People are that are not following Jesus are are not just neutral towards Jesus, but they're angry towards Jesus. And so he doesn't spend time defending and, and, and and going through the apologetics of how to uh, deal with all those issues of being a citizen in a broken government served by broken people. Now he just says, okay, you're, you're a people that are redeemed. You're living in a fallen world. Their government is over you. This is how you should live. This is it. This is the the call that that God puts on the believer's heart for how we function in a society that is governed by fallen people. The the third thing that we need to realize is what this passage doesn't teach us. Uh, Romans 13, 1-7 does not directly say what we ought to do when the government departs from the role that God has ordained for it. Romans 13 does not specifically explain what to do when our government is committing a moral wrong. Neither we are told what to do in the midst of a revolution. Romans 13 does not advocate any any kind of government. It doesn't God's word doesn't say this is the best kind of government, so do this kind of government. It does not even commend democracy. It just gives us, how do we respond? How do we live in a world governed by broken people through an institution that God has ordained? And so let's read the passage together. In Romans 13 verses 1 through 7, this is what we read. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it, is not, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of god devoting themselves to this very thing render to all what is due them tax to whom taxes due custom to whom custom fear to whom fear honor to whom honor has god's word stepped on all your toes yet this is, isn't this wonderful? <laughs> I, I'll tell you what. This passage has been hanging over me. Probably since Romans chapter 1. Like I knew this day was coming. This passage at this time. And especially in this context. In this country. With all of the craziness that we've been experiencing for Almost two years. Just the constant back and forth, the constant upheaval, the constant uncertainty. Now, we're not going to be able to answer all the questions that you may have about what to do in the middle of a pandemic and how should you respond to certain things. We're not going to be able to work through all those issues. That's that's not the the, uh, the focus is much of Romans 13, but what I will say is in the midst of all these things, God is saying, how should you as a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the country that you live in respond to those who are in authority over you? Now, our passage this morning comes on the coattails of the exhortation that we talked about last Sunday in Romans 12 about not repaying evil for evil. Like it's not for us individually to be a people that are to for every wrong committed to us to exact revenge and get whatever is required out of that person for the harm that they have brought to us. It is not up to us to repay evil for evil. We leave that in the hands of God and God's wrath will be poured out in the appointed time on behalf of his justice and holiness. God will do it. But on the, the coattails of what Paul says about our individual responsibility to not repay evil for evil, we find Romans 13, 1 through 7. And if you were listening, which I hope you were when the, the scriptures were read, you read that one of the, the things that civil government is to do is to bear the sword and to be God's avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, not the Avengers like Marvel, the superheroes, the comic book characters, but government is God's avenger enacting wrath for those who practice evil. In God's sovereignty, He has purposed that mankind is led by governing authorities who are purposed with being his instrument. God does not sit idly by. As a gift of common grace to a fallen world, God has instituted governing authorities for a purpose and reason. Now it's for us to understand what that is and to trust him for it. Now, as I say those words that God God has instituted, that He has ordained governing authorities to be His instrument of wrath on those who practice evil, some of you are probably already thinking of 25,000 different scenarios where you see the government not doing that. Paul doesn't answer. How do we respond? to all of those scenarios and situations. He just says, in the context of a Roman Empire that wasn't godly, it was full of idolatry, it was full of pagan worship, it was full of uh, self-worship... It was, it was appointed that the Caesar would become a demigod in, in the midst of the people, that it was all about him and his role. And yes, they had a senate, a senate and they had a republic and all those things. But really, Caesar pulled all the strings. And there was a constant turn, turnover of, of power and, and all the things that go with it. And Paul says, in, in spite of all those things, understand how government is to be over you. And this is what I want you to do in response to it. Now, before we dig into the text, and look at these verses. may I simply say to you this morning that God is inviting us to trust Him in our response to government and authorities. And our response as citizens is an act of worship to Him. I don't know if you've thought about that. Uh, when tax day comes, it is an act of worship. How? Because by your faithfulness to do what the government requires as a citizen, you are worshiping God in obedience to him. And so we need to understand that there's some bigger things at play sometimes than just what we read in the news and how we feel... Um, in a reactionary way to news that comes across the the crawl at the bottom of the TV screen or what we hear from a person or, or read on social media, those kinds of things, that really it's an act of worship. As followers of Jesus, we should be the best citizens we can be because our obedience and submission is ultimately to the Lord. It's to the Lord. So the question that Paul quickly answers for us is who should be in subject to governing authorities. So if you're reading this passage and you're sitting in the church in Rome and you're a free man who was a Roman citizen that became a follower of Jesus or you're a slave, who that was the majority of the the uh, Roman population, or you were a Jew in? coming from the nation of Israel who came to find life in the true Messiah, or you were a Gentile who did not come from that covenant community, but you found Jesus along the way. If you're gathered in the church in Rome, hearing this letter read as Paul writes it, and you're thinking, okay, I hear you talking about these things, but Paul, who do you mean must be in subject to the governing authorities? Very quickly, he says, every person. Every person. All of us. Every person is to be in subjection. Now, this word subjection is an interesting word. It comes from the Greek word hupotasso. Hupotasso is the same Greek word that is used in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, when Paul writes about the relationship between a husband and a wife, and that a wife must be in subject to her husband. Now, this word hupotasso is means to place yourself under. The idea behind being subject to governing authorities involves voluntarily placing yourself under the authority of another so that he or she does what the authority requires. But more than just the requirement, submission includes obedience but it also carries with it the attitude. It's not just the obedience part. It's the attitude of the heart. To submit carries with it the attitude from which obedience springs. And to resist government and its authority over your life, is to resist God Himself. And so we're called to willingly place ourselves in submission under the governing authorities. In so doing, we acknowledge something about our faith in God. And Paul says this in this passage, for there is no authority except from God And those which exist are established by God. This is what is referred to as the divine right of state. All authority comes from God. All of it. Now here's the crazy thing. All authority comes from God. Every government authority is placed by God and is an instrument whether they realize it or not. I don't know if there's many politicians. I don't know if there's many governing documents. I don't know if every government authority wakes up every day and says, okay, God, we are the instrument in your hand, so we're going to act and think and live like you want us to act and think and live in governing over people. It doesn't matter if they understand it or not. They are, by God's place, divinely established by him. Government is God's idea. It's his idea to govern the affairs of men in a sinful world. The former chaplain of the U.S. Senate, Richard Halverson, said this one time. He says, To be sure, men will abuse and misuse the institution of the state just as man, because of sin, has abused and misused every other institution in human history, including the Church of Jesus Christ. But this does not mean that the institution is bad or that it should be forsaken. It simply means that men are sinners and rebels in God's world. And this is the way they behave with good institutions. As a matter of fact, it is because of this very sin that there must be human government to maintain order in history until the final and ultimate rule of Jesus Christ is established. Human government is better than anarchy, he says, and the Christian must recognize the divine right of the state. And so here's the reality of what Paul says in Romans 13. No matter how you feel warm and fuzzy about the government that is placed over you, right? How many of you wake up and say, Phew, I'm so thankful for all these rules and regulations. And I'm so thankful for how they are making these decisions. And I'm so thankful for the, the direction and the course that we seem to be going down. But here, in a very real sense, whether it's America, or a communist country, or anywhere, I'm serious, we need to be thankful that there is a government over people, no matter how crazy and crooked it seems from our perspective. Why? Because without government, the world erupts into anarchy and complete chaos. Government is an instrument in the hands of God to make sure that sinful people do not lose their minds and destroy everyone. Now, we may not always like that, and it may not always see itself in its fullest measure in that way. But in some sense, we need to understand why it's here and what place it's for. In Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 21, we read this. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. And so, do you see that in the middle of that declaration? It is God who removes kings and establishes kings. It is God who removes presidents and establishes presidents. But you might say, well, hey, every 4 years we go to the voting polls and I have a choice. You do. Is God sovereign over that? He is. God is sovereignly appointing and tearing down appointing and tearing down if you read daniel chapter 2 further you read that the king of the the country that daniel and his friends were taken to was king nebuchadnezzar and in Daniel chapter 2, the king has this dream about this large statue, and he's looking for someone to tell him what the, the vision means in this dream that he had. And when you read in, in Daniel chapter 2, uh, when Daniel receives the interpretation and shares the interpretation with the, the king that was not friendly towards God at this point, you, you see that from head to toe, each part of the statue was made out of some kind of metal, Some kind of material. And each of those materials stood for a different empire that would rise and fall in human history. Whether it was the Babylonian or the Assyrian or the Greek or the Roman empires. Rising and falling, rising and falling, rising and falling. But then there came at the end of that the Ancient of Days. A large stone that would just bust through and destroy that statue. And what is the Ancient of Days? Or more importantly, who is the Ancient of Days? The Lord Jesus Himself. And when Jesus comes on the scene and obliterates all the world's kingdoms, we know that He will stand forever in His kingdom and will establish it for the good of His people. Now the question might be asked right now, if you haven't asked it already, to what lengths Are we to submit to those who are in authority? I mean, that's an important question for people who love God, right? What lengths should we go to submit to those in authority? Well, I would say that there's probably three areas uh, that we should resist authority, okay? We're going to talk about those. The first one is this. If we are asked to violate a clear command of God... If the governing authorities say to you as a child of God or make a rule or a rule of law that, that causes you to violate a cl- clear command of God, and I'm talking about a clear command of God, what the scriptures say, then you have the opportunity to resist and not submit. There's an example, the classic examples in Acts chapter 4 and 5. This is Peter and John. And they, they were, you know, the, the church was just born. The gospel is going forth. And, and we read in Acts chapter 4, but so that, that, but so that it will not spread any further, the gospel among the people let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name and when they had summoned them Peter and John they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus so the the governing of authorities in Israel at that time were worried about this crazy message Of Jesus dying being buried and rose again and that by faith in him he gives you new life and he calls you to a new relationship that is not the way that the religious leaders were teaching and so to squash that they came along and they told the disciples of Jesus stop telling people about Jesus. And in verse 19, Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. And so Acts chapter 4 happens and then you read in Acts chapter 5, Peter and John don't stop. And aren't we so glad this morning that they didn't stop? Because if they stopped, we wouldn't be here. So in Acts Uh, or in verse 20, we, we read, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. That's an important phrase, right? We cannot stop speaking. When you find life in Jesus, it should be such a life of transformation that you just can't stop speaking about life in Jesus. There are times I get excited about things and I can't stop speaking about them. My kids can testify. My wife can testify to that. Something cool will happen in my life and be like, for that next day... I can't stop talking about it. But I eventually stopped talking about it. When Jesus comes into our life, though, it should be always a part of our conversation. It should season everything that we say and all that we are. In Acts chapter 5, we read this in verses 28 and 29. They're caught, right? Peter and John are caught. They're saying the things that they were told not to say. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Simple. If the state asks you to violate a clear command of God, resist. There's a whole lot that we can point our fingers at that are saying they're giving the opportunity for us to violate clear teachings of God. I would say that we often bristle at government for poking around in our affairs, but it's often not on the clear teachings of Scripture. Sometimes we feel like they're being intrusive and getting in the way of what we want. But is it often a clear declaration like this? But what we see is when the will of man conflicts with the will of God, the Christian must choose to do the will of God. So that's the first thing. The second thing is when asked to do an immoral act, any morally unethical reason should be a reason for us to pause and think twice about committing an immoral or unethical act simply because the state requests it, like falsifying records, lying, perjury, all those kinds of things. So if you know, someone comes along as a, uh, uh, a member of the state and says, hey, for this case or for this cause, we want you to do this, and it's not truthful, we have grounds to resist. And thirdly, uh, we must never go against our Christian conscience in order to obey government. And we call this Christian liberty. Believers must never sin against their conscience. And I I would say this, when we talk about Christian liberty, we're talking about sinning against a Christian conscience, not sinning against, you know, just our arbitrary what we want when we want it kind of feelings. We have to make sure that they are from and fashioned by the word of God. The government may allow certain things and may even endorse it, but we should never give in if it violates our conscience. We need to acknowledge that on matters of conscience, Christians do not always agree. On matters of conscience, Christians do not always agree. You could have a room full of Christians, and there will be various opposing viewpoints on certain issues, but they, by the Holy Spirit, are directed in their conscience. To not believe or to believe. Now, I'm just going to use one example, um, you know, in the Christian community, just to kind of get you thinking about this. But there are large segments in the Christian community, our brothers and sisters, that are pacifists. And they feel their conviction is they would not join the military due to religious convictions. And others in the Christian community, a large portion in the Christian community, believe that. Uh, Being involved in such a venture is an instrument of protection against evil. And so they rise to the call to serve. Is there a right answer? No, there isn't. It's a matter of conscience. And those are the kinds of things. And so if you have in your Christian liberty a a a held view of something, and the government or the state is asking you to violate your your biblically held view, it would be in violation and you can resist. Now verse 2 highlights the danger of refusing to submit to government. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Those who resist God's ordained authority can expect to suffer condemnation by the government. This is a really indirect judgment of God. These verses are called to a profound obedience. Now, remember the context of Romans, of the church in Rome. The church has already begun to become or be persecuted. Nero's going to come and, and persecute. The believers then, and today, are called to submit. And and in their submission, they are called to stand firm for the gospel and what the Word of God says. You might say, well, that seems like it's a whole lot of gray and not a whole lot of black and white. I would say that God's Word is clear. We stand in the light. And in those areas where it's in violation, we trust that God will bless. But if we are willy-nilly just you know, throwing our nose up in the air at government and saying, I'm not going to have anyone lead me. Or, hey, they're a bunch of buffoons. And we've said a lot worse than buffoons. We are in violation of what God says. Verses 3 and 4 talk about the uh, essential role of government. What Paul says when he says, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister, for government is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. In verse 4, Two times, as we will read later in this passage, another time, we read that government is a minister for God. That word minister is the same word that is translated elsewhere in the New Testament for deacon. Government is God's deacon. And you're thinking, what? They're the minister, they're the servant. It's in this way that the government does not cause fear for good behavior. As an instrument of God, government should cause fear for what you do that is evil. Not good. Listen, if you're driving 55 in a 55, you have no fear. If you're driving 75 in a 55, you're probably looking over the rearview window, looking for blue and red lights that are going to swirl to pull you over. Why? Because if you go beyond the established rule that is to govern the people, you should be fearful. Now God has made government His instrument to punish all who do wrong. They are an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. The state renders evil for evil. They're the ones that can handle evil. Um, the, the law of retribution. This is done through justice that is dispensed by the state. The sword that is mentioned in verse 4 is a reference of the state being able to enact capital punishment on behalf of sin. And capital punishment was ordained by God, not the state, right after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood by man his blood shall be shed for in the image of God he made man. Now you may say, verse 4 and verse 3 seems very idyllic. Okay, I can submit to a government who is not bringing fear for me and doing good. And I like it when the government strikes fear in those who do evil. But honestly, is that the world we live in? No. I mean, it seems like at times, in some way, shape, or form, government is corrupt. And often the righteous suffer. And while that is true at times, we are still called to trust in God. Who is the one who sets up and causes to fall down all rulers and all governments. Listen, there is not one human government institution that will stand forever. The Romans thought they had the world cornered on their type of rule and government and all that. And they lasted a good long time, but they didn't last forever. God will and his sovereignty cause leaders and kingdoms to rise and fall. The only true kingdom that is going to last is the Lord's. Now, remember, the scriptures show us what life is like without governing authorities. It does it in two specific places. I think it does it in other inferences, but two specific places. We have what it's like for a world to have no governing authorities. The first one is in Genesis 6, shortly before the flood. If you were in our Sunday school classes over the last few weeks, you heard about what the world was like without a governing authority. Everyone did what they wanted to do. The world was exceedingly wicked. And so God saw that and his heart was broken and he, he was grieved for creating man. So what did he do? He destroyed the world with a flood and caused one family to be saved to start over. The other one is in the book of Judges. And we see this time and time again in the book of Judges. Judges is the nation of Israel who are in the promised land. God was to be their king. And we have these episodes all throughout the book of Judges where they are to trust God, but they don't. So they follow their own way and they are judged for it. And their, their nation breaks out in the calamity. Judgment comes. Warring nations, all the problems that go with it. What do they do then? They cry out to God. He comes to rescue them and they're safe for a little bit and then they abandon him and they do what is right in their own eyes. And that phrase, everybody did what was right in their own eyes is repeated all throughout the book of Judges. And this is what, the, this is what a community looks like when they live for themselves and do what is right in their own eyes. We do not want a world without governing authorities. We don't. It is necessary, as Paul says in verse 5, to be in subjection. Not because of fear only, but also for conscience sake. The depth of our obedience is called out here. Paul says we don't respond to governing authorities and submit to them just for fear alone. We are subject, not because of fear of punishment... But we are subject because we understand that government is a divinely appointed institution and rulers are unwittingly God's ministers. It's a matter of conscience. It's a matter of trusting God in our heart. That these people, whether they realize it or not, are his instruments to care for humanity. And to violate that should bring trouble To our conscience. So, what does Paul say in response to our submission and following our conscience? In verses 6 and 7, for because of this, you also pay taxes. So, some of you who work in tax offices and things, this is your verse for job security. Because if you didn't have pay your taxes, you wouldn't have a job. But I would say this, as much as we don't like to pay taxes, I know I don't. I mean, I, I remembered the first time I came in contact with FICA. I was thinking, why are they getting all my money? We begin to understand that paying our taxes is a way to support those who are placed by God as his instruments to govern the affairs of mankind. And 2,000 years ago in Rome, taxes were out of control. There were taxes for taxes. But the Roman Christians were exhorted to pay their taxes Since officials give themselves to serving God and governing people, God's people are obligated not just to the state, but also God himself to support them by submitting to them and by paying their taxes. Paul says in in these verses, For because of this, you pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Render to all what is due them. Now, listen, I don't know anything about the tax code. I don't. I have people that know things about the tax code. And you know that in the tax code, there's all sorts of rules provided to give you um, ways to alleviate your tax burden. So I would say as a good citizen, use the rules. Don't just close your eyes and say, okay, well, this is the blank rate, so, okay, they can get it all, and that's my way that I'm following what God says. The rules that they're dictating allow you, so in stewardship, use the rules. But don't hold back what you owe. You know, when you get the tax bill, right, and this is what you owe, after everything is calculated, you don't have the opportunity to say, you know what, though, I don't like them. They're unfair. They spend it in ways that I would not spend it. And then we make ourselves king for the day and decide that we'll hold it back. Paul doesn't give us that option. More importantly, God doesn't. Jesus settled this issue in Matthew 22, verses 20 and 21. He, he was out with his disciples. The religi- religious leaders caught him, right? They thought they were going to catch Jesus. Here's the thing about Jesus. When you read about him in the Gospels, you can't catch him. And it's not that he's slippery. It's that he is wise. And so they brought the issue of tax up to Jesus, thinking that if he agrees that they have to pay the tax to Rome, then they can say, look, he's a Roman supporter. Or that if he agrees, yeah, you shouldn't pay your taxes to Rome, they would nail him on the fact that he's not following what the state says. And so Jesus took the coin that was found after, I think it was Peter went fishing, right? And they found the coin in the belly of the fish. And he pulls out the coin. And the coin had the picture of Caesar on it. And what does Jesus say? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And render to God what is God's. Pay your taxes. Paul also adds one thing that I think it's important for us to think about for a minute. In verse 7. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Part of your submission to government means that you honor those who are in governing authorities. Can I say that again? As a child of God, part of your submission to government is that you honor those who are in governing authorities. But. No. But they. Sorry. But. Sorry. It's not an option whether local, state or national. Those people are appointed by God whether they agree, whether we agree with how they lead, whether we agree with what they believe. As believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, we should be the first people in line to show honor to people that are serving in those roles. Listen, you can disagree with someone and still show them honor. You can. But here's my concern. In a pandemic world, we are losing the sense of what Paul was saying in Romans 13, verse seven. Because we think that disagreement means I can tear them down, I can destroy their character. You don't have to drive too far from our church, and I'm not going to mention where it is. You probably already know where it is when I say it. You'll drive right down the road and you'll see signs along the road that say, "My governor's an idiot." and he has a dunce cap on his head. I know, we laugh and chuckle. Is that showing honor to him? No, it's not. You may not agree with the governor and his policies, how he's leading and governing, but we show honor to the office and the person that's in the office because it's ordained by God. You don't have to scan through social media too hard to find people that are attacking the character of other people they disagree with. In governing authorities, including our president. I mean, it seems like with every election cycle, it's no longer about governing. It's about do we like him or not. And then if we don't, we, we find every possible way to destroy the character of a person who has been appointed by God in that role. I don't want to be in that role. <laughs> And you may disagree, and I disagree with a lot of the policies, and I will pray, and I I will disagree adamantly for the things that, that people in those places will sometimes stand for that are in direct violation of the Word of God. But in no way should I attack the character of a person as a result of my disagreement. Show honor to those who deserve honor. Pray for those who are in governing authorities. That's probably the biggest way you can show honor to someone. Pray for them. This is what Paul told Timothy. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For kings and all who are in authority so that that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. When Paul wrote 1 Timothy to Timothy, he wrote two letters to him. Paul had already been under house arrest. Paul had already been beaten, shipwrecked, accused, all these things. And he says, pray, pray fervently. Pray for those who are in leadership so that we can lead a tranquil and quiet life in godliness and dignity. We should be praying for God's will to be accomplished through the hands of people that don't understand that they are instruments in the hands of a righteous God. As Christians, we may deplore the politics of a particular person in office. We may be repelled by their scandalous conduct. But that does not allow us from forgetting to respect the office. The person is just a human, but the office exists at the discretion of God. Even in our descent, we must honor God and the person. Now listen, the apostle Peter said this about his experience in the midst of Nero's fiery persecution. In 1 Peter, we read how Peter is writing in that context. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men, act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as bond slaves of God. I love that, right? Freedom doesn't mean that you can be careless. Freedom means that in freedom, you don't use it as an excuse to do whatever you want in the guise of freedom. Use it as bond slaves of God, submitting to God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. That's the disciples' words. This isn't just like pastoral musings. This is God's inspired word to us. And so as we close, I simply invite you back to the words of Jesus in Matthew twenty-two, twenty-one. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This is the divine call of all believers in their response to human government. Let's pray.